At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Welcome to our series, Unstoppable, Bound in His Love, Freed by His Spirit, where we're journeying through what many call the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans 8, to uncover a more lasting force than hard work and a more enduring purpose than momentary success. You may have a seat. I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We've been walking through this series called Unstoppable, looking at the profound work of God in combination with the Holy Spirit in the lives of every believer. And so turn to Romans chapter 8. We will be in verse 26. And and as you turn there, I just want to celebrate again like Jacob did, like Pastor Rob did, the many families taking that step today. Jacob himself and Jordan will be uh, dedicating their newest edition, I know, in this next service along with uh, another family, and it's just such a joy to be a part of that. Um, knee deep in that life myself, Ash and I, 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 I kind of had a, a feeling this morning as we were getting ready for the service, I'm like, man, maybe Ash and I need like a booster dedication at this point, right? Like, Oh man, it's been one of those weeks, right? It's been one of those years. Maybe you've lived long enough to say it's been one of those lifetimes where sometimes it seems like chaos. Sometimes it seems like suffering, like there's joy, but there's also, there's weakness and there's, there's excitement and energy, but then there's also tragedy and heartbreak. And you know, sometimes those heartbreak seasons seem to last and stick in ways that it's not easy to forget. Just this week, Ashton was texting me uh, midway through one of the days. You know, it was Tuesday, right? We weren't far enough into the week to be falling apart yet. It doesn't take long. And, uh, you know, it's like every possible bodily fluid had been on the floor already that day. And, you know, like every possible food group had been scattered and every possible toy had been uh, broken. You know, it's one of those days you're like, man, what else can go wrong? Like today needs to be over. And, uh, you know, then you're in the urgent care because you got to glue your kid's forehead back together. And you're like... Oh, in this season, young families, so many of you right here with us, like, man, am I going to be able to make it, right? Like, <laughs> how am I going to make it? And this is, you know, a stress. All the parents who have been beyond us lovingly slap us with, uh, you just wait, right? That not encouragement, encouragement, you know? We see you. We know who you are. Just, just wait. The teenage years are better. Harder, worse, I love them, whatever the encouragement is, it doesn't take away how am I going to make it today, you know, like, oh man, okay, buckle up, and then it's, you know, the empty nest season, and you're caring for your loved ones and parents, perhaps, who, who are struggling, and, and then it's the next journey of uh, maybe the, the loved ones that are younger than you that are making decisions that break your heart or going through real difficulty, and you don't know how to carry that burden for them, and you just wonder, how how am I going to make it? When does this thing get easier? Paul writes to a group of Christians in Rome, in Romans chapter 8, who are going to face civic and uh, cultural and uh, official political opposition. Their very existence is going to seem tenuous for hundreds of years still, And as he writes to them, he wants to give them assurance and confidence that even as they face an uncertain future, great difficulty, their sufferings 
he posits in verse 18. It's kind of the thesis for uh, the text we looked at last week and the text we're looking at today. His thesis is essentially this. In verse 18, he says, I consider the sufferings of our present time, all of the difficulties, all of our weaknesses, all of our fallenness, all of the persecution, everything that's wrong and bad and ugly of this current time isn't worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. He's saying our sufferings are not equal to, they're not worth comparing, you don't talk about in the same sentence, to the glory that's to come. And this sentence seems cheap, maybe on its own, if you're in that season of hardship. And it might seem like a lie when you know that some of the people that Paul wrote to were murdered or killed or destroyed or families ripped apart or sold into slavery lost everything, despite this statement being made over their lives. How can it be true that our sufferings aren't even worth comparing to the glory that's to come? Well, we find ourselves in need of that same assurance today. And by God's wisdom and goodness, he's provided his word as truth to guide us to some help in that despair. And so um, I want to look at this. And I, please give grace. The text we're going to walk through, verses 26 through 30, uh, man, that, this should be the next three sermons, and we're going to do it in the next 25 minutes or less. And so we are not going to get into all the nuance. We're not going to explore every possible pathway that's an offshoot of this truth. But there's an overarching theme that Paul's making that we have to grasp today. And, and so he says in verse 26, as a way of supporting that our sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us, he says this. Likewise, he links it to what he had just said, and we'll talk about that in a second. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches our hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes, prays for the saints according to the will of God. Paul is linking this passage to what he just shared. He talked about how, hey, our sufferings aren't worth comparing to glory. And, and here's the deal. I know we're suffering. In fact, creation itself is groaning with agony, waiting for redemption. And, and we as humans, we're groaning with agony, agony waiting to be made whole. We, we are, we're sighing with this angst and hurt and anticipation. And he continues that and he says, Likewise, the Spirit is sighing along with you. God the Holy Spirit, alive in each one of his made new believers, is groaning alongside of us, praying towards the will of God. The first thing that Paul goes to as he talks about the way we can be encouraged in this season of suffering is that our prayers are strengthened. In fact, our prayers are surpassed by God the Holy Spirit. Our prayers are surpassed by the Spirit's prayers for us. Now, this is kind of like radically good news for us as humans because, listen, we feel all the time lousy at prayer. 
Maybe we just don't feel confident to know what we say. Like every now and then we do these Puritan prayers or these guided prayers. Maybe you've opened up a book of, of, of scripted prayers every day, your devotions, and you're, you're looking at these prayers. And you're like, I, I don't pray like that. I don't know how to do this. And I feel overwhelmed. I'm not sure the right thing to say. Maybe life has brought you through a season of enough hurt that even turning to God at all feels overwhelming. Not only do you not know what to say, you're, you're feeling unwelcomed in God's presence. Maybe just being in this room right now for you is the hardest step you've ever taken because you've gone through so much hurt and pain and you're suffering so much that just opening up your heart to what God might be up to seems like something you are not interested in. There's so much anger. There's so much fear. There's so much pain. Yet God does everything we need in order to bring us back to him, including getting our prayers right where they need to be. The Spirit, God himself, Paul says, helps us in our weakness, in all the ways that we're not right, in all the ways that we're not smart enough, in all the ways that we're suffering, in all of our fears, the Spirit helps us by praying for us. When we turn to God in prayer, even when that turn is just a sigh, a groan, a hurt, a pain, and we're just saying, God, what is up? The Spirit is there with you, praying the perfect prayer for you, right alongside you. This changes everything that I can think of about how I approach God. I think this is some of what Paul is getting at when he says we can approach God boldly in the book of Hebrews, right? I, I don't know about you, but I have a spot for my moments like this. I, I can walk down Seabolt to a, a boat launch right on Loon Lake. And at nighttime, I mean, there's, there's nobody out there. It's perfectly quiet. It's a little bit dark, like creepy, scary dark maybe, but like I kind of, that's my thing. I'm okay with that. It didn't go over well on some of my first dates with Ashton. I'm like, let's get out to like look at the stars somewhere in the dark in the creepy woods, and this will be great. And it's like, not a great date idea. Um, terrified her. Um, so I, I do that by myself now, um, which is still probably scary. And I, I get there, I, get, I can walk to the edge of that dock, and it's just silence, and it's just quiet, and it's just the stars. And I can just, I mean, sometimes it's like a yell, right? Sometimes it's like, God, what are you doing? It's a, it's a cry. And in that moment, what God tells me through his word is the Holy Spirit, as I turn to him, is actually praying alongside with me the prayer that I don't know how to pray that brings me to God's will, that aligns my heart with God's heart. So in those moments, maybe, right, and maybe you've experienced this, where you've just spent some time praying, and you feel a peace that you didn't know you could feel. You feel contentment with that situation that you didn't know. You feel God's love in a way. I think what Paul would argue is it probably wasn't your time praying to God by your prayers. It was probably the Holy Spirit's time praying alongside you to God for you. That's the kind of work that God does. Our prayers are surpassed by God the Spirit. Sometimes... Um, we like to think of ourselves, maybe I'm weird like this, I like to think of myself like this bold pioneer. Growing up, I had a Daniel Boone skin hat type of thing. I'd run around the backyard with my pretend rifle, act like I'm, you know, blazing a trail through the wilderness. 
I haven't done that in long enough, don't worry. Uh, um, and I, I sometimes like to, to picture myself as that kind of hero, right? Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to work with God right now. I'm going to pray. I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to blaze a trail towards God in prayer. And that's maybe why then when I'm hurt or I'm angry, I'm at a loss. I don't even know what to say because I've been depending on myself to be that hero approaching God in this courageous way all along. Like, I'm going to storm the gates, but today I just don't feel like it. And what Paul is pointing out here is the reality of the effectiveness of our prayer life with God. Listen, we're called to be ceaseless in our prayer. We're called to, to pray the scriptures. There, there is a work to be done in prayer driven by grace and our love for God, but the, the actual effective side of prayer, I imagine, looks much less like Ben Hickson blazing a trail into the wilderness towards God and far more like Ben Hickson boarding a passenger jet and falling asleep in the seat and God bringing him to himself. We're carried along by God. And so in the midst of our sufferings, in the midst of what we're facing in life, there's hope. Because we don't have to pray eloquently enough in order to earn God's attention. We don't have to pray for long enough in order to make it work. The mood doesn't have to be right. You don't have to have Jacob Mason up here singing dulcet tunes in order to approach God in a way that God hears you, although that is a blessing. Your prayer may not seem like anything significant. In fact, your prayer might seem like it's one of those kids who is up here just now, right? A childlike faith just turning to God doesn't even have the words yet. And God, the Holy Spirit, takes over. So for us who are drowning in diapers and toys and activities and don't have the chance to understand what God is doing in our life and how we'll make it, for those who are so angry they don't know where to begin because there's so much hurt, or when you're just aching for a revival and you're waiting for God to work and you're not sure why it hasn't happened the way you pictured it yet, this is good news for us. We're so helped in our weakness by God praying for and with us that Paul even ends up deciding in a letter to the Corinthian church that it's better to be weak. God's power is actually perfected in our weakness, in part because the Spirit comes alongside us in our weakness, where Paul is able to admit, listen, God said to me, this is God's words, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And I imagine his power being perfect in our limitations and our sufferings and our weakness has something greatly to do with the fact that in our sufferings and in our weakness, we're helped by God praying for us. So prayer, friends, is not a performance where we hope to get God's attention. In our worst day of prayer, the Spirit of God is praying with and for you better than we ever will pray this side of heaven. What a gift to know that the news you had this week that you don't know how you'll make it through, as you've turned to God, God has prayed perfectly with and for you. Isn't that hope right now? 
So how are we going to make it? Well, the Spirit is praying that way. But Paul isn't finished. He goes on and he says in verse 28, perhaps maybe the most famous verse in competition with John 3.16 in the entire Scripture. He says in verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And he goes on to say, those he foreknew, he also predestined, we'll get to that in a second, to be conformed to the image of his son. Paul says not only is the Holy Spirit praying with and for us, that gives us hope in our circumstances, but actually God is using our circumstances for our good. Our circumstances are being synergized, worked together for our good. Paul says, listen, we know, we can be confident about this, that for those who love God, if you're in the family, God, if God has rescued you, this, this isn't true for everyone. In fact, there's a different story for those who don't know God, but for those who are in the kingdom of God, who have made Christ their Savior because of his work for them, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, I'm going to break this down in like 17 ways, in about 17 seconds. So, so, so track with me here. He says all things work together for good. I, I think we need to be honest with something right up front. All things include bad things. We, we've said this a hundred times before. We've lived this a thousand ways in life, and I Somehow we're still always surprised by this because there's this false religion, this, this idea in our minds that somehow if I live good, God will bless, right? That kind of performance-minded attitude that God's going to owe me because I've done enough for him. That seeps into our hearts in a thousand ways. Perhaps because this verse is plastered on every mug you've ever seen in every Christian store and we, we believe a false narrative of it. But God says all things happen including bad things. So yes, bad things do happen to Christians. And, and before I move on too quickly from this idea, maybe we should admit this too, bad things really are bad. Can I just say that in like an overly simplistic way here? Bad things really are bad. Let's not sugarcoat it. I don't want to silver line it too quickly because while we're about to say they get worked for good, I think sometimes we skip to that past the bad. And then when we're alone in our pain, we don't have a language to deal with that. We haven't seen enough of our brothers and sisters in Christ ache and hurt and cry, and we're terrified of that. So we isolate ourselves, we distance ourselves, and those seasons of pain and hurt where we need each other the most, just because we don't acknowledge that bad things really are bad. We talked about this last year, or this last summer, sorry, in our Lament series. Bad things really are bad. I think of Jesus approaching the tomb of one of his great friends, Lazarus. And he knew, as God, in flesh, what he was about to do, right? What was Jesus going to do? He was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, right? So if I'm Jesus, which... Let's have a conversation about that thought afterwards. If I'm Jesus, I'm walking to, uh, to a tomb where I know I'm about to have a victory. I'm about to raise this brother from the dead, and there's an audience. 
Do you know how I'm approaching that tomb? Come on, like rocky music in the background. I got a smirk on my face, like just wait, just wait, just wait. It's like when I'm tricking my kids with like a pretzel behind my ear, and I'm like, hey, no pretzel. Ah, look what I did. If I'm Jesus in that moment, that's how I'm approaching that moment. Because I know the outcome. I know that this bad thing is about to be worked for this incredible good. What does Jesus do in that moment? Approaching a bad thing, his enemy named death. What does Jesus do? Most succinct verse in the Bible. He weeps. He cries. And when he talks to Lazarus, he actually talks to death itself. And the, the emotionally laden term that's used is that Jesus yells at this grave. He's angry at death. It's his enemy. It really is bad. Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus proves the bad things are bad and God hates them. His synergy of our circumstances, good and bad alike, doesn't mean that those bad things are good. It just means he will work through and past and from them for good. So brothers and sisters, as you're walking as brothers and sisters through life with the people in your life group community this week, or you get a text from that friend and family about the things that each other are facing, let's use God's truth about his good out of bad surgically, not like a club, right? And if you come alongside somebody quick with this truth, like, oh, that's awful, but God's going to use it for good. The joke's been made, right? You're liable to get slapped in the face and told, well, I guess that's for good too. Let's mourn with each other as we point to God's hope. Let's support each other as we're at our wit's end. Christianity, in that sense, has been said to be the only religion that takes suffering seriously because our souls are so valuable created in God's image and our suffering then is so devastating that nothing short of an astonishing truth like this that even though bad truly is bad not lessened and not cheapened not distorted God can work through and from it for good nothing short of that makes sense in the long run God of course works it for good works it for good, collaborating from all of our circumstances in life towards an end. We see that in Joseph's story so powerfully, right? In Genesis, where after all that harm, he's able to look at his brothers when they come back at the end of his life, after all the things he had been through, forced captivity and slavery and abandonment and uh, being left and falsely accused out to dry. At the end of his life, he's able to look at those who had hurt him so badly, and say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. But let's be quick to acknowledge then too. For good is not the same thing as a good time. Right? For good is not the same thing as a good time. There may be times in life where God does close the door. And we shouldn't be quick to assume while he closed that door, he's going to open another one for me, right? She broke up with me, but listen, it's okay. God's got a better one for me, right? Like that, we want to write the end of the story. It's like, God, man, this, this person meant it for evil. Please mean it for my good time. God says, no, I, I don't mean it for your good time. I, I mean it for your good. 
And it may not look the way you've sculpted or scripted it out in your mind to look. For good instead means like Christ. He says, we know that all those who love God, for them all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, again, those are the ones who love God. For God's people, all things are working for good. For them he foreknew, he also predestined to be, here's the purpose, this is the good we're working towards, conformed, conformed, sculpted, shaped, pressed into the image of his son, Jesus. Our best possible outcome in life is looking like Christ, conformed to the image of his son. And this is profound because at the very beginning of the story, this is where we started. Made in the image of God, as life was supposed to be good. But our rebellion wrecked that. We've known nothing but suffering since. And God says, here's the end. I remake you and conform you back to my image. That's where you're going. And that's what I'm synergizing. That's what I'm working everything in your life towards. And you want to settle, don't we all? We want to settle for something so much less than that so often. It's like the image of your son through this lifetime that you sculpted for me sounds entertaining, but, but hear me out on this. What about a $350,000 house? That, wouldn't that be like the same? Or what about no debt? Or, or hold, hear me out on this. What about a loving partner who lives for me? And none of that excuses the pain and the hurt and the agony or the sin or the wickedness or the wrong that gets done. But none of that also is a prize worth fulfilling our souls. God is actively collaborating everything, the good, the bad, the average, the important, and the boring, so that it shapes us and directs us towards his purpose. What's this mean in real life? Michael Bird says it this way. We don't live in the best possible world today. I don't think anyone argues with that statement. But we're being prepared for the best possible world in the best possible way. Or to put it another way, when it comes to the circumstances in our lives, the things we're walking into day after day, the things we're wishing we had, the things that we wish we didn't, John Newton, pastor, writer, said it this way, everything is necessary that God sends. And nothing can be necessary that he withholds. And as I hear that at first, I want to fight that so bad. Like if that verse, if that, it's not a verse, if that quote could be a person, like I'd be ready to go to war. Like let's, I don't like this at all. What are the things in your life that you're most frustrated that God has allowed to happen? Everything is necessary that he sends. I'm shaping us in ways we don't know synergizing it in a way we don't understand. It's wrong. It wasn't God's will. Not outside of God's usefulness. What are the things that we're most heartbreaking? God is seemingly 
kept from happening. The thing we haven't gotten, the thing we're desperate would happen. What if we allowed ourselves to believe what the Bible asserts here, that God will bring our ultimate good out of even our current circumstances, our current evil. In fact, perhaps even more specifically, especially through those circumstances. Spirit is praying for us. God is synergizing everything in our life. We're starting to understand how our current sufferings aren't measuring up to what the end of our story is. And there's one more truth that Paul gets into. He, he says in verse 29, like I started to read, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Paul shares a chain of events here that really tells the story of our conversion from death to life, turning to receive him as our leader and our rescuer. He says we're foreknown, we're predestined, we're called, we're justified, and we're glorified, and he links these five ideas together. We're not going to walk into each one of these. Paul doesn't take the time to walk into each one of these. But what he essentially says is, listen, from before you existed, from before time existed, God foreknew you. He had a love for you and a familiarity with you ahead of time. If you were in the family of God, God always knew and treasured you. And then he chose you. And then he called you. What we're seeing here is before we were broken, before we tried to get ourselves back together, before we existed, God was at work. And he called us. Paul talks about calling throughout the New Testament. He points out that the same gospel that everyone else thinks is foolishness, the only reason God's children ever see it as something they want to love and respond to is that God awakes them with a call. He says that in 1 Corinthians. He says in 2 Timothy, the God who saved us and called us to a holy calling— didn't do it because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Jesus before the ages began. We're seeing a picture here that our love for God is because he called us, not because we figured this thing out. He knew about us. He chose us. He awoken life into us, and then he justified us, making us right before himself, giving us all the rightness of Jesus, and settling all of our wrong on his behalf through the sacrifice of his son Jesus on the cross. And then he continues his work all the way to glorification. Glorification is that process where he makes us completely sinless, perfect, like himself in every way. No more weakness, no more frailty, no more suffering. Glory is ours. But notice... Man, I know my life well enough. He says, those who he justified, this past tense, the work of Jesus on the cross, he also glorified. Glorified. Past tense. Brothers and sisters, guys, we're, we're a family. You know me well enough to know full well I am not glorified right now. I know some of you well enough to know the same about you. 
How can Paul talk about our glorification as if it's finished? He does it because of the one who does it. See, since it's going to be God who's doing this work, since it's been God who's done this work since before time began, Paul can talk about the end of our story as if it's already over. It didn't depend on Ben Hickson to begin with. It had little to do with Ben Hickson at any point in time. And the end is finished in the same way. I mean, the best thing about a believer's future identity is already finished. It's written in the past tense. What Paul is saying with this chain of five actions of God towards our salvation is that our future is secured for his glory, for our glory. Our future is secured for glory. Like like a potter. It's a picture God uses for how he's at work in our lives so often in Scripture. Like a potter, he's always been at the clay. Everything that's happened to us has happened because his hands are right there with us, knowing us, loving us, choosing us, working on us for a result that's already predetermined. And when our prayers are surpassed by the spirits and our life circumstances are synergized for our good and our future is secured for glory, what Paul is saying here above everything else is that God has done all that we need to see every single one of his children all the way home with him forever. God has done all that we need to see us all the way home. It's been him who's done the work all along. So our Are we going to make it? You know you're weak ahead of you. You know you're hurt ahead of you. Maybe you don't know the hurt ahead of you. Right? Far be it from happening, but we hold these children on stage, right, as an example today. And we have hopes and dreams and then fears for the future. That that girl at 16, they're going to want to fall in love with and how we're going to handle that. And and that career, are they going to be able to make it? And all these things. And We don't even know if we're guaranteed that far with them. We don't know what the future holds. We know from our past experience, hurt is a part of the process. Am I going to make it? What Paul points us to is the fact that God has done all that we need to make it all the way home. So what do we do? Maybe four things. First, we repent and believe today. We repent and believe today. Paul says that for those who love him, for those who've been called together for his purpose, they're in the family of God where Jesus is the first and foremost, the firstborn above a family here. Are you in that family? If you're not, God's clear by omitting and then by talking about it later on in, in the revelation of Scripture that the future for us apart from him is not good. It's just, but it is not good. So today, has God been at work calling you, awakening a faith in you, awakening a love and a curiosity towards him today that you've been 
holding at a stiff arm. You're not sure what to do with because there's pain and there's hurt and you don't know how to figure it out. What Paul is saying is you won't figure it out apart from the one who made you, who chose you, who wants to make you right with him. So respond today. Repent and believe that Jesus died in your place for your sins and he can make you right with him and make all of your life circumstances work for good in the end. We can't do it ourselves. So respond to the one who's done it for you. What a good gift. What a grace. What an easy burden. We'd love to talk to you about that today. But if God's been stirring in your heart, what we're seeing from the truth today is that he's already done this work of saving you. So let's step into it together. Next, talk to God honestly. The Spirit has you. You can bring your hurt. You can bring your confusion Spirit is working unrelentingly in our prayers. Next, live our lives gratefully. When we know that God is working everything for our good, when we step into things, we can hurt, we can be honest, we can be real, but we can turn in gratitude to a God in every moment. Always joyful, right? What a week to have a chance to think about living gratefully in front of a God who's working everything for good. May we have a purposeful thanksgiving. And then finally, enjoy his gospel confidently. God has worked unrelentingly across the timeline of existence to bring about what we could never do on our own, an eternity glorified with him. We don't have to be afraid in front of a father who has done all the work to love us home. Believer, God has been synergizing everything in your life towards a good of recreating you after the image of his son. And the spirit has been praying this from you when you couldn't even turn to him. And you don't need to accomplish or earn your way home. And Christ, glorified with Jesus, is your forever. It's how we make it through suffering. It's how we make it in hope. It's how glory doesn't compare. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.